Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Glasgow. Are you receiving me? Live from Glasgow. It's Saturday <laughs> night. Well, not Saturday night, actually. Uh, hello, how are you? Well, I'm all right, but I, d- I just want to check in with you straight away. Are you okay? Yes, I am. Why? It's just we, we spoke on the phone yesterday evening and you, you sounded a little listless. Did I? It's almost like you were sick and tired of everything when you called me last night from Glasgow. Gosh, I, sorry, I gave you the wrong impression. No, no, Ed, I was quoting the lyrics to Super Trooper. It opens with the line, I was sick and tired of everything when I called you last night from Glasgow. Oh, I see. Sorry for that. I just, it's, a, it's a cultural reference that just went completely over my head. I, th- I thought I was on safe ground with ABBA. I mean, I tell you what, never mind, you know, how we tackle the climate emergency. There's a lot of love for the podcast on, in uh, COP26. I wish you could have sorted me out with a lanyard. I mean, I hope I'm not going to get into trouble. Rachel Younger from ITN, you know, she was like interviewing me and then she said, oh, I, you know, where's Jeff? I thought, what do you mean, where's Jeff? Thinking, who cares about Jeff? <laughs> this, is, this is so good for my self-esteem. I know, I, that's why partly I'm telling you. So how has it just, because it's so easy when you're here to be in the weeds. I'm, I'm sort of sitting kind of under the kind of large revolving globe and you just get no sense of how it's going. And I know there's been other news around, brackets, so invest in closed brackets, but what's your impression? We should say we're recording on Friday. So I feel like from the outside, for most of the week, it's been a big news story, but it doesn't feel particularly like much much has been done when it doesn't feel like we're hearing significant news and then i don't know today i almost feel that it's it's moved on a little bit but i'm not not quite now now i'm kind of confused looking at externally because i i do feel like there's a little bit of a laundry list of stuff that we can go through if you like on on the positive side but then on the negative side pe- people are comparing it to copenhagen i wasn't aware of that in what way I think the COP26 coalition made some headlines by comparing it to Copenhagen and how it's been ineffective. But as I say, you look at some of the announcements, there's there's stuff from Mark Carney on money, stuff around deforestation, methane. That all seems on the face of it quite positive, but I I don't know if it's um, the kind of significant announcements that uh, people might be hoping for so what is it what is what how, how does that square up with what it feels like on the inside i think as characteristically your analysis is, is very sharp and spot on i mean i think what what do i feel i feel like the world is definitely moving towards net zero and you can say that about this conference you know the fact that we've got lots of countries now saying they want to move to net zero is significant and, and then you've got these other announcements on forests on um, methane on finance. So that's the sort of good side of the ledger. The problem is that you immediately wonder about the get-out clauses. At one level, the world is making significant progress. And, and then you look at these sectoral announcements and you know, the forestry announcement. Well, yes, it's good, but in 2014, the world said it would end deforestation by 2020, or lots of countries did. 
and now at 2030 and you know what's the enforcement mechanism and you know is Bolsonaro really invested in ending deforestation and then on uh, coal where the major emitters are missing so it feels like there are lots of loopholes and and this is what one of the things that I've been trying to do this week in, in what I've been saying if what it's worth is 2030 is what matters and we know what needs to be done which is to halve global emissions this decade and we are a long way away from that you know you probably heard me wang on about this before but it's that's the, the metric and and I think there's something about the 2030 numbers which at least creates greater accountability it's not like there's a great enforcement mechanism for the 2030 numbers but if people say this is what we're saying to the world we're going to do in 2030 and it's making that add up to to 1.5 degrees which is the task of the world now we're not going to get there in Glasgow but I think that is the metric and I think I think all the other stuff is important but it's got to be, it's got to be in service of taking the urgent action we face this decisive decade because if we don't take that action you know, carbon emissions stay in the atmosphere for thousands of years and we will lose the chance of 1.5 degrees. So that's sort of my not very pithy summary of where I think we are. You know, it's sort of progress, but not nearly enough. You remember when we talked about COP over the summer and you t- trying to explain it to me that as, as well as the, the centre of it where you have leaders and, and people from governments around the world you've got this uh, i guess like the white of the friday which is the activism uh, and the, the the campaigning and the various movements and non-government organizations how much time have you spent in in that world in in the in the white part of the egg i've probably spent too much time in the is the yoke the 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 sort of elites is that what you're saying i think i think so yeah well i've tried to do both um uh, but probably I've spent too much time in the yokes. Um, I think the people who are saying that this com- this conference has felt too much like the elites in the blue zone and, and people outside and so on, I think they've got a point. And I, 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 just as a symbolic thing, I think they should have let Greta speak to the leaders. You know, I right. think it was a mistake not to do that. Because I think it sort of added to that sense of exclusivity. Um, you know, I think there is a real danger that that could be an issue in the... In the in the second week, that sense of the voices that have been excluded. And have you managed to catch a glimpse of Greta? I haven't. Sorry to disappoint you. You didn't um, manage to speak to Jeff Bezos about that toaster that went missing from Amazon, did you? I feel like I've let you down. Yeah, that was that was the one thing. That was my one real objective for COP26. I've let you down. I've let myself down. I've let the toaster down. But shall I say who we're talking to later on? Yes. Well, there's so many people to talk to, but um, the, the, who you're going to hear in this uh, episode is, is first of all, we're going to start with the, the voices of young people. And, and I think young people are absolutely crucial in this debate. Being able to talk to young people, uh, you know, lifts your eyes and, and your spirits and makes you realise what this whole thing is about, or reminds you what it's all about. So there are some young people from UNICEF who were actually in the blue zone. Uh, but then I went to the march, and, and I'll say a bit more about it later, but you know, the, the Fridays for the Future March. This is the Pupil Climate Strikers, and, I, and I've got some voices from there. Then we'll be hearing from Simon Steele, who is the Environment Minister in Grenada, a country really under threat from the climate crisis. And, and he's incredibly eloquent um, and, and interesting. Uh, and then we've got a great conversation with Pete Betts. Pete Betts, who was the 
chief negotiator when I was the uh, minister in uh, Department of Energy and Climate Change. As he'll say in the interview, he's got lots of different roles, but he's loosely attached to the UK delegation. But he really takes us through what this conference is about and, and how, one sh- how we should be thinking both about Glasgow uh, and beyond Glasgow. Now, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, I, fe- I feel like I, uh, I, um, I showed my hand with this because I texted you to tell you already, but somebody from Hackney Council came into my son's primary school the other day to talk about what they're doing for the environment. And I mentioned before on the podcast, my son, who is five and a half, is is really interested in the environment. It's something he really latched on to, I think, sort of strangely early. So he was very excited and he put his hand up and he said, please, please, me, me, please, please. I know someone who works in the parliament who's trying to save the planet. His name's Ed. Do you know him? And he he was met with a complete blank stare. She said, no, I, I don't think I do know any anyone called Ed. No. Uh, that is really disappointing. That is, sorry. And then, and then I think his teacher tried to, to help out because when Gene came home, he said, is there someone called Ed Balls? I said, there is, but that's not, not Ed. Next time you need to use the name Miliband. Why is that a reason to be cheerful? The, the glee with which uh, I, I reacted when I heard this story, knowing that I'd be able to report that to you. I'm distressed. OK, I'll give you another one then. I, I learned a good fact this week. Go on. You know when you click your fingers? Yeah. The sound isn't the clicking of the fingers, it's your finger hitting your palm. Really? Yeah. I think that's true. Try putting something on your palm and, and see if it still does it. You're right, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great fact, isn't it? Where would I be without you? What's, what's your reason to be cheerful then? Right now, here's a question. Do you know what a Jack and Jill bathroom is? Do you have to go up the hill to fetch a pail of water? No, a Jack and Jill bathroom is a bathroom which, which, which is in the middle of two rooms. And so you have to lock the door on the other side. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I can, I can see where this is going. Uh, your friend Jill's parents have very kindly offered to put you up. And they've seen something that they shouldn't have had to see. Haven't no, they? no, 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 okay. no, no, that, 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 that's not it. No, I was at the Borders Book Festival on Thursday night. And who was sharing a Jack and Jill bathroom with but Rory Griffin? Oh, really? To claim to fame. Can he do you? He can do me, yes. Um, and not in the toilet, necessarily. But, <laughs> But anyway, so, I mean, in, you know, there's a sort of mild amount of awkwardness about sharing a Jack and Jill bathroom. Somebody you have to sort of, well, you have to make sure that you lock the door on the other, I think you're getting the point, aren't you? You lock the door on the other side, on their side, and then you use it yourself, and you remember to unlock the door so you don't lock them out, yeah? Yes, but it is, it is a high risk. It's a high risk environment. I mean, I think we both navigated it sort of reasonably well. Um, oh, oh, I, I actually, sorry. I've forgot my real reason to be cheerful. Honestly, you're going to love this, Jeff. This is, do I get a bonus reason to be cheerful? Oh, please, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I had a bonus one. Okay, this is like the nerdiest reason to be cheerful I've ever had. There is a, the, the, the seminal tech you've got to use for, for working out how we are making progress is the UNEP Emissions Gap Report, a document I know you are acutely familiar with. Anyway, you know, I am so excited because because basically then yesterday, actually, as I was on my way to um, to Glasgow, I got an email saying that um, Anne Olof, who is the coordinator of the UNEP Emissions Gap Report, is happy for me to contact her. 
and then and then I've contacted her and I'm meeting her under the giant globe at 3.30 this afternoon. I'm so pleased for you. You know, there is that don't meet your heroes thing. Well, there is, there is. You know, they might shatter your illusions, but honestly, you know. Make sure you get a selfie. Do you think it'll go viral? Be like the Ellen one all over again. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, as I mentioned, I went on the Fridays for the Future um, rally march last Friday and it was it was you, you know, meeting the people climate strikers was really inspiring and first of all I talked to Anna who was one of the Glasgow pupil climate strikers. Anna what do you make of what's happened so far at the COP? I think we feel like COP is just a show from leaders we don't feel like there's actual progress being made and we think that it's just rhetoric rather than actual action that's happening. And what would be the sign of seriousness, do you think? What would be your, it's a hard question, but what would be your <laughs> litmus test of, of, like, you know, serious action? Well, listening to the science would be a, a first start. I think um, the science tells us that we have to do it in a short period of time. Yet the, the commitments that are coming out of COP are past this deadline. So it's not quick enough. It's not happening quick enough. I mean, I completely agree with you. And that's why 2030 really matters, doesn't it? 2050 is too late, you know. There, there's no accountability there. We need, we need targets that are within this parliament, that are within the next 10 years, that can be held accountable to the current leaders. I think uh, with climate, it just it, it's, it's not getting the, th- the problem framing that it deserves. It's not being, you know, COVID-19 was a crisis. So is this. And it's been a cl- crisis for a very long time. And it still doesn't get taken seriously. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, what about you, Need? How have you found it? Um, it's an absolute privilege to be here to represent young people. We're all trying to do the best we can here because at the end of it all, this is going to be our world and our generation just wants to leave from the front right. And then we've got Magali. Yes. Where are you from, Magali? Um, I'm from Derry in Northern Ireland. I think it's been quite inaccessible and exclusive, but I don't necessarily think that's the government's fault. I think there needs to be systematic change and... It's COP. I think COP has been like this before and it will be like this next time. So it's an issue with the institution and not necessarily the government. And Maham, um, tell us where you're from and what you what you think. Uh, hi, I'm Maham. I'm from Manchester. And I think it's been, it's been incredible. I've learned so much and I've been very inspired. And it makes you think that maybe, maybe there is hope for the future. But I think that there definitely needs to be work done on how accessible it is for the future because we need to be involved um, as inheritors of the earth uh, and therefore we need to be at the table when these discussions are being had and when these decisions are being made. Look, you inspire me, so uh, thank you all. Thank you. So I'm at COP26 with Simon Steele, who's the Environment Minister in Grenada. Simon, talk to our listeners about the situation that Grenada faces in relation to the climate crisis. Just paint a picture of it for us. Climate change isn't an abstract thing for us. It's a daily lived experience. So whether this is dealing with more frequent, more intense um, hurricanes, which in a matter of hours, not just the loss of life, could cause devastation 200% of our, our, our GDP. Um, whether it's rising sea levels, loss of our coastlines threatening our coastal communities. We're already having to relocate um, communities in affected areas. Um, Agriculture, um, whole issue of food security, water security, uh, increased droughts, extreme flooding situations. 
it cuts to the heart of our very way of life. And, and a massive issue here at COP26, and indeed for, for a decade now, has been the $100 billion of climate finance promised by the developed world in Copenhagen in 2009, still not delivered. Just say to us why that money is important, but also talk to us a bit about the frustrations that this hasn't yet been delivered. As developing countries, we do not have the financial resources to address the impacts that we're facing. So there is need for support from the international community and bearing in mind, as small island developing states, we have contributed the least to global warming, yet we are impacted the greatest. We just don't have those resources to build the levels of resilience that's required. So the 100 billion is absolutely critical, but that is just the starting point. That's a drop in the ocean as to what is required to um, to build resilience in, in, in highly vulnerable countries. And in terms of pledges made, we yet to reach that 100 billion, which is just the starting point. The conversation isn't about billions, it's about the trillions of dollars that are required to provide the necessary support for the most vulnerable. And th- there must be a sense in, in countries like Grenada that developed countries have found money during COVID for totally understandable reasons to deal with the crises they face, but it's been far too hard for them to deliver on what is a basic, a basic promise. Absolutely. I mean, trillions have been mobilized for COVID release. I think it's 12, 13 trillion um, over a two-year period, which is incredible and absolutely necessary. But another question that needs to be asked is where those trillions have, 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 have been channeled. And the vast majority of those that have been supporting industry and business have been in sectors that continue to contribute to global warming. This was an opportunity, still is an opportunity for the green recovery that um, everyone speaks about. But when you actually examine where those investment flows, financing flows are, are going, they're actually not going in green technologies. They're going into areas that are simply exacerbating the climate crisis. And we're in the middle of COP26. Uh, we don't know what the outcome will be. What, what's your best case scenario when you go back to Grenada? What's your best case scenario about what you can say to the people you, you represent and the people that you're working for in your country? It will be that we kept 1.5 alive. That is uh, absolutely fundamental. That the 100 billion and there is still opportunity for um, for more pledges but that 100 billion has been met or there is a plan for um, for, for, for reaching that over um, the, the, this pledging um, period that adaptation is clearly on the agenda and there is uh, a common understanding of why adaptation is important both in terms of adaptation finance providing the necessary resources um, but also the, um, the technical support that is required to make the most vulnerable of nations more, um, more resilient. The issue of loss and damage um, is critical 
to vulnerable developing countries. And then, of course, that the Paris rule book has been closed, has been finalized, but ensuring the environmental integrity, those rules are strong enough, robust enough to ensure that 1.5 stays within reach. Well, look, Simon Steele, it's great to talk to you. You've got a very important job, which is working out with Denmark how the world is going to approach these issues in the years ahead and that we don't have to wait till 2025 um, to deal with them. But I know you've got um, important private work still going on on that. But thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So I am incredibly excited to be here under the large revolving globe with my friend, colleague, and generally my hero, Pete Betts, who was the lead official for me when I was the Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change at the Copenhagen Summit, and is now, I think it's fair to say you're multi-hatted. More hats than George Osborne did. Um, and go on, tell us what you, some of your hats are. I'm a senior fellow at the European Climate Foundation, uh, professor in practice at the London School of Economics Grantham School. Uh, I advise a very big uh, resilience company, and I'm also um, uh, providing some advice to the Cabinet Office at the moment on, on COP26. You've got this very interesting position. You're a sort of semi-detached member of the UK delegation. Yeah, I sort of strategic advice means you're largely ignored. But, <laughs> but also largely independent to speak your mind. Uh, largely. Largely, what we'll see in this interview. <laughs> first of all, Pete, we should just set the scene for... I remember the first meeting I had on climate change at the Department for Energy and Climate Change. I think it was in a nasty basement room, is my memory of it. And I walked in as a complete ignoramus as you tried to explain to me the arithmetic of climate change. Do you remember this meeting? I, I do remember that meeting. I think the meeting, the meeting room was known as LG01. Lower ground floor, room number one. Well, there you go. Um, and and we were then together at Copenhagen, um, which didn't go so well. You you were the person who, um, and we've probably talked about this before on the podcast, who, when uh, it was all going down the pan, and we, we got a dispute between us about what exactly you said to me as I was about to go to bed, standing in my pants, uh, uh, after being 24 hours of no sleep, but you called me to tell me that we need, I need to get over to the conference centre fast. Exactly. I, I should say, when you were standing in your pants, that is by your own account. I was on the phone, not, not, in, not in your room. But I, I, I definitely urged you to come over quickly, which you did. And you, I think you made a, a big difference in salvaging something from the meeting. Now, let's talk about where we are here. 
Give us your sort of best assessment of where you think we are. Well, Ed, this, this, as you know, this is a very different cop from uh, Paris, for example. So there's not a huge amount of text to negotiate. There are things to negotiate, but it's much more about the process we've, over, we've undergone over the last year to raise the ambition of countries' emission reduction pledges. And the picture there is, you know, is a mixed one. You know, on the one hand, we have got some major... Uh, increases in ambition from a number of countries, the EU, UK, US, Japan, Canada, Argentina, Colombia, South Africa. But you've seen less from others, although India has, uh, has moved at this meeting. But although we've seen significant increased ambition, uh, which does get us closer to climate goals, it's nothing like enough. It's nothing like enough. We're a long way short of where we need to be to be on track for 1.5. So it's a kind of you can tell a half full or you can tell a half empty story. I like to tell a half full story that we have made very substantial progress, but it's clearly not enough and it, we're going to have to build on it fast in the coming years. That's a very helpful and clear sort of top line assessment. Just, just let's take us through for our listeners just the sort of what we've seen in the first week and just the significance you attach to the announcement. So we've seen, I would guess it's fair to say, sort of three sets of significant announcements, or maybe it's four on deforestation, on methane, on finance, and on coal. Just give us your sort of top of your head sort of sense about just just on each of those, the significance and, and the importance. Have we seen these before? Is it full of loopholes? Is it good? Is it bad? What's your thoughts on them? So, so these are these are plurilateral commitments. They're not negotiated across all the countries at the conference. They're, they're groups of coalitions that are willing, uh, committing to take action in different areas. Um, the one on deforestation, uh, we've seen commitments to end deforestation before, and we've got one this time. If we can pull this off, it's really transformational, both for the climate and for nature, and for the people that live in these forests. Um, why might this? Why don't we deliver this time when it hasn't always been delivered in the past? Well, we've got much more donor finance. We've got some carbon finance, and we've got a commitment with firms and countries in the supply chain to to move to deforestation-free sources of, of agricultural commodities. So, potentially, that is really big for the climate as well as for biodiversity. But you know, we're definitely going to have to hold. Uh, the feet to the fire of those who put this uh, this proposition together. Uh, methane is another. There's a lot of very low cost potential to reduce emissions. at very low cost from things like gas distribution networks, um, and we've got equipment to aim to reduce emissions from methane from this sort of source by 30 percent by 2030. Again, this would be great if it could be done. We don't have the really big methane emitters like Russia and China on board. That's one sort of downside. But again, we, you know, we've got some big players, and it's all about holding the feet to the fire to, to see how they can deliver. On coal, um, you know, we have seen we, what we haven't got is commitments from the really big coal users, China, India, to phase out coal or to mix maybe coal at home. And I. Frankly, I never thought we would get that at this meeting. We have got commitments from these uh, countries, from the big major state funders of coal, China, Japan, Korea, to stop funding coal internationally. That's important. I think you see a, there's a very interesting um, uh, cooperation with 
South Africa, where a bunch of uh, developing countries are working with South Africa to give them eight, eight, over eight million dollar package to help them move away, transition away from an over, away from fossil fuels in a, in a just way. I think that's quite transformational. Potentially, it could be replicated elsewhere. And you know, we've also we're also seeing in country targets like India, although they're not permitted to take coal, the, the expansion of renewables is really dramatic. Um, Finally, uh, finance. Actually, we are seeing um, on the private finance side some commitments by many of the big jurisdictions to require companies to be transparent about their climate risk. And I think increasingly we will see pressure on, on major corporates, major finance companies to to show how they're going to do their bit towards reducing um, emissions. Not, not just show that they're green, but show how they're going to make their contribution to attacking the problem. So, you know, all in all, I do think this is a worthwhile package, but I wouldn't want to suggest that, uh, you know, this is a done deal. All of and the, the thing you and I were talking about before we came on air, is, and it might be useful for our listeners, is would it be right to say there's three different categories of commitments we're seeing? We're seeing nationally determined contributions, which are the 2030 commitments, which is we need to halve global emissions this decade and, and NDCs are to, to keep 1.5 within a fighting chance of 1.5. And so you've got these NDCs, you've got these sectoral deals, and then you've got these net zero targets. And, you know, people have heard this week India saying net zero by 2070. You know, we've got everybody's on the net zero bandwagon. It's like 90% of GDP now covered, I think, global GDP covered by net zero targets. And we obviously have a net zero target in the UK, 2050, backed up by legislation and so on. How significant are these net zero targets, do you think? I do think they're very significant. I think, I think um, there is a great value in, in long, long-term signals on the direction the economy is going to take. It really can help shape investment and, and direct policy. Um, there's clearly a risk that these are just aspirational and we need to be vigilant against that. But I do think, for example, in the UK, particularly through the work of the Climate Change Committee, it provides a framework where every decision increasingly will be tested against its compatibility with this direction of travel. You know, we've got a commitment in the UK to a 68% reduction in 2030 and a 78% reduction in 2035. I'm not sure we would have got them without having this framing of the long-term net zero goal. So I think it will be important that we bring that kind of approach, you know, to different countries who have net zero in a way that works for them. But um, I do think we need to help those countries develop some rigour and some proper planning to ensure that these targets are meaningful. And, and I know this is sort of hard to generalise, and I'm not asking to name individual countries, but how much do you think this is? these net zero targets are real and how much are they, if you like, the sort of fashionable thing to do and, and it's easy for politicians? Because some of our listeners will be thinking, look, it's just easy for politicians to make to make promises for 30 years' time, 40 years' time, even 50 years' time, because they ain't going to be around. How much is it real? How much is it not so real? You're right to suggest that there is a risk that, you know, that, that for some it may be purely aspirational. But I, I actually do think there is value in long-term signals to shape investment behaviour, to shape expectations. 
So I, I don't think we should dismiss them. I think they have a lot of value. But as with all of this, we need to constantly build, maintain the pressure from civil society, from electors and so on, to ensure that these targets actually uh, shape policy. Now, now, one of the things our listeners might be thinking, and I think it is worth us explaining this to people, because I think it probably does date back a bit to Copenhagen, um, is, OK, all, you know, you've got your 2013 nationally determined contributions, you've got your sectoral commitments, the indignity deforestation and so on, and you've got your net zero targets. And people will be wondering, OK, well, what's the, what's the enforceability of all of this? And if we're honest with each other, that is, in a sense, the Achilles heel of this process... Now, am I right to say that the way we think about this process is, and it really does date back to Copenhagen, or maybe beyond before Copenhagen to Kyoto and, and the whole framework, this is a voluntary process whereby countries put forward bottom-up targets, put with their own national determined contributions, or they say things about sectors or net zero targets. But I mean, the enforceability or the accountability is just really the court of international public opinion, isn't it? Uh, that's entirely correct. I mean, in, in the Kyoto Protocol, you know, we had a slightly different system. We did... I'm sorry, the Kyoto Protocol, sorry to interrupt, was 1997, yeah, the agreement of 1997. Apologies, that's correct. So the, the first kind of instrument we had with, with, with concrete targets was that Kyoto Protocol that only had targets for developed countries. And there, there were compliance penalties if you didn't meet your target. So, for example, if you would have to essentially make up any shortfall uh, after the period of the target and pay a penalty, uh, you know, overachieve on, 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 on the, the shortfall that you had, you had missed. But it, be, it, it became very clear that countries outside Europe were just not up for this sort of system. We saw Canada and Japan and the US walk away from Kyoto. Um, and then when we tried to develop a system with targets for all, which we did in Copenhagen and later in Paris, you know, it was very clear that there was absolutely zero willingness on the part of China, India, the United States, Brazil, you know, Japan to have any kind of compliance mechanism. So, you know, we are resting on, as you say, public opinion and um, naming and shaming. And, and just as a matter of interest, again, for our listeners, is this a matter of sovereignty or is it a matter of, people, of, of countries not meeting their targets? I mean, one of the things that I think you and I used to say about China, for example, is it tends to do not what most politicians do. It tends to under-promise and over-deliver rather than over-promise and under-deliver. So how much of this resistance is countries wanting to wriggle out of their targets and how much of it do you think is just a sort of sovereignty issue? We don't want our domestic policy to be kind of determined internationally and... and and we don't want to face these constraints. I, th I think it's a bit of both, but I also think it reflects in the end that it is still not a first-order uh, priority for many countries around the world. You know, if if in the future, as climate change sadly gets worse, as we're already seeing, you could imagine the politics shifting in the US, in China, in India, and perhaps it, it will be possible to develop a system with a bit more teeth. Once you've got the really big players willing to acquiesce in that, then I think you could develop a system uh, that, that really did put pressure on countries not, not pulling their weight. I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you this with not with your UK government hat on. Give us a sense of what is the potential range of teeth that they could be. Uh, 
Um, none of what I said has been with my no, 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 okay, UK yeah. hat, which is purely yeah. advisory, as yeah. I say, and it's, uh, um, uh, you know, I, mean, I think we're already seeing in the European Union, they're developing proposals for a so-called carbon border adjustment mechanism, in other words, a tariff that would be applied to imports that had embedded carbon in them. Uh, that hadn't been subject to uh, proper environmental or climate controls. I think the, the EU are moving very cautiously on that. They don't want to provoke a trade war, but I think it's coming. I think you could see that coming in the in the UK as well eventually. I think the the, EU, the US would go there in a second if they could get uh, a carbon price through their own legislature, which currently they can't. So, and sorry, Pete, just, just this carbon border adjustment mechanism, just for our listeners, it would basically mean that if you're importing goods from, say, China, and it had high levels of carbon associated with its production, you'd, you'd apply a tariff on the basis of the amount of embedded carbon in it. Correct. So I, th- I, th- I think that will come eventually. And, you know, ideally, that's... And I know the EU is keen to do this. This will be something that would be done in partnership with China. So I, I do think this sort of thing uh, could come. And there are other mechanisms for uh, putting pressure on countries. So you can use the power of procurement, for example. It's very sensitive. But that, that, that is what is implied with this deforestation supply chain commitment. I mean, the implication is that over time, the, the countries that purchase agricultural products from tropical countries like soy, like palm oil, like cocoa, like beef, will want to be assured that those products have not been produced on deforested land. As that consumer pressure comes through, then countries, forest countries will have an incentive to concentrate agricultural production on, on other land and not deforest. So that, that is, in a way, another form of, of trade measure. And I think we might see more of that. I was talking to a company this morning that was saying they're looking at their so-called scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Scope, scope three emissions are those all the way down through their supply chain. So they are finding that a chunk of their emissions in their supply chain is actually from China. And so, you know, that is, if they want to, if that company wants to get to zero emissions over time, it's going to want to talk to, the, to its Chinese suppliers about whether they can reduce their emissions. Because if not, it may have to source its uh, goods from elsewhere because if it wants to be serious about having its own uh, net zero uh, strategy for its company. And talk to us about China for a minute. Um, You know, they've set a target to reach net zero by 2060 and to have their emissions peak before 2030. That was generally seen as somewhat on the disappointing side. How do you read China? At the, uh, you know, China is. We should say for our listeners, China is twenty-eight percent of global emissions, so it's a big, it's big potatoes. Um, how do you read China at this summit? I, I, I think that the China's net zero commitment in twenty sixty is a serious one, and it was it was a real act of leadership by President Xi back in September of last year to set that all greenhouse targets, net zero targets. But I also think that its its target for 2030 is is insufficiently ambitious. China just matters more than anybody else in this issue. Its, its emissions are bigger than the entire developed world. If we're going to meet climate goals, we need China to do more. China has put forward a very, very modest and I have to say disappointing target for 2030. 
So, you know, I know China is continuing to develop its its policy suite that relates to carbon emissions, and I do hope that over the coming year, the elements within China that want to, to be ambitious because it's in China's interest will, will prevail. Last question. Uh, you've been at this a long time. I feel myself that I go through a sort of big mix of emotions sort of almost hourly, you know, of sort of optimism, pessimism, realism... <laughs> idealism, fatigue, uh, looking for a sandwich, not a bacon sandwich. Uh, uh, um, what's, you, what's your overall emotion at this, uh, uh, this COP? I mean, you're so, I think you're a glass half full person at this COP, but just talk to us about where you feel like things are, are and given your long experience. So, by nature, I am a, I am a, a pessimistic, half-empty person. Uh, but uh, I, I intellectually uh, convinced myself that half-full is the right approach. So you and I were together in Copenhagen, and the deal that was, in some respects, not that bad. But the meeting ended in acrimony, and expectations were way ahead of what was doable. And the result was it was perceived as a, as a massive failure. And because of that perception, arguably it was a massive failure because that fed through into, you know, slower progress on low carbon in, in, in the real economy and in investment decisions. So what happened in Paris was that the climate community kind of learned, learned its lesson, so to speak, and was prepared to welcome a Paris deal, which was good. But, you know, it had commitments that were less than half of what we needed for two degrees, let alone one and a half degrees. It was a treaty, but the major provisions were not binding, there were no compliance provisions, and yet we were prepared to call it a triumph. That experience of Copenhagen Paris kind of convinces me that, you know, if you try and junk what you've got because it's not delivering enough and put something else in its place, you, you lose years. And the better strategy is to get as much as you can, be very honest that it may not be enough or it's not enough, and uh, basically build the conditions to come back for more. Well, look, Pete, uh, I really appreciate your time. You're doing massive amounts at this summit with your many hats. I, I, I'm glad to see you've been doing media during the summit. I, I feel you you have potential to become the Joe Wicks of COP26, the, the sort of the go-to, uh, the go-to person. But, but, um, but for now, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. It was a great pleasure. Great pleasure to see you. Well, what did you make of all that then? It's so interesting. COP feels like a glimpse of what could happen if, if that much thought was, was given to the climate crisis on an ongoing basis. You need to sort of COP all the year round, yeah. basically. Permanent cop. I mean, I've got so many uh, sort of mixed emotions on this. I, I, I sort of start by saying that you, you know how sometimes somebody who's out totally outside the bubble can really bring it home to you. I was standing on Motherwell train station platform to come back to London, and um, I, I met a, um, a guy on the station platform called 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 Jim. Who it's a long story, but he actually looked after my bags for a few minutes while I went and grabbed a coffee before the train arrived. But anyway, and he said that he thought it might be a sort of Jeremy Beadle style thing where I kind of <laughs> left him with my, Ed Miliband's left me with his my his bags, and now what am I supposed to do? But but anyway, leave that to one side. I said to him, "What?" Do you, he said, "How's it going to go?" And I said, "Well, I'm not sure what it's, the outcome's going to be." And he said. Clues in the name. And I was like, well, what do you mean, Jim? He said, clues in the name. COP26, they've tried 25 times before and they haven't <laughs> succeeded. 
And I thought it was absolute genius because, because in a sense, Jim is sort of right about this. I mean, you know, it's not like there's been no progress at all, but, the, but, but, you know, he has sort of got a point. I mean, just on your point, you know, I basically spent most of the week going through these mixed emotions of thinking, oh, well, there is a bit of progress here. And then thinking, oh, but look how far we've got to go. Um, you know, in a sense, whatever happens in Glasgow, we've got to move forward. But I tell you what is really, you know, just just to sort of say this now, you know, I think we sort of know how much progress we're going to have made on these 2030 numbers. And the answer is going to be not that much. And then there'll be this question about how much you can add on these sectoral commitments, how much they represent um, uh, these net zero targets, how much, you know, how much sort of buttressing do they give you? But then this this critical question for me is when do we return to these issues? Do we return in 2025, which is far too late and is like a devastating blow to keeping 1.5 alive? The vulnerables have said we should return every year, the vulnerable countries. George Eustace was on the telly this morning, we're recording now on Sunday, saying something like he wasn't sure or something that the that it would be pushed this every, coming back every two years will be pushed for in the in the text in in the in the final text, which was I'm really quite was quite worried about what he said, but it's unclear whether he actually represents what the UK presidency is saying. But you know, if this is the start of urgent ambition raising i don't think it will be have been a great success i really don't and i think we can talk next week about some of the reasons for that but 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 at least there is a sort of sense of urgency and i i can't believe the world is going to say well, we'll come back to you. see you later see you in 2025 but i think that is that is one of the most consequential questions and then to be honest jeff we've got to and we'll talk about it next week, but we've then got to think what are the lessons we learned from this COP? Why didn't we make more progress? How do we treat it like the emergency it really is? Well, there's a, there's a cliffhanger for next week. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. When are you back off to COP then? Middle, sort of middle of the week, I think because it's got this Friday deadline but but the last the one last year which wasn't nearly as consequential as Glasgow went on for two extra days so generally these things do not finish on time wow yeah no it's like you're definitely in the referee holding up the you know plus two days sort of so it's not like Coldplay have got the conference centre booked. Well, I mean that's an interesting question. You know, who knows? I think it, I think it can't go beyond Sunday, and maybe it'll finish on Saturday. And has has Jim still got your bags? No, I managed to. I managed to get my bags off Jim. Uh, and um, it was my son's birthday today, so we went to the Arsenal. I sort of feel like half my head is still at the cop. You know what I mean? You know, that that children's book. You know, Daddy's forgotten his head, or Daddy's lost his head, or something. <laughs> It sort of feels like half of my head is still at the Cuthbertsons in sort of East Kilbride and sort of half of it at the, you know, the quarter at the Cuthbertsons, a quarter in the, at the, you know, the sort of SEC. You know, it's just like, you, of course, it's like sort of diving into this other world and then you sort of leave the other world and you realise that the normal world is sort of carrying on. We should release you back into the abnormal world then. Maybe, maybe. Well, look, I would like um, to thank our guests. I'd like to thank the uh, incredible young people who I spoke to. Um, I'd like to thank Simon Steele, and I'd like to thank Pete Betts. 
Emma Corsham produces our podcast. She has skillfully woven all these bits of audio that Ed has recorded on She's his done phone. done a great it's job. something for you to listen to, so thank you to Emma. Uh, Joel has departed. I mean, the, the job, yeah. not sh- uh, shuffled off this mortal yeah. coil, but uh, his presence is still felt. Get a loft house. No, I think, actually, I think actually Joel's gone cold turkey on us, let's be honest. Oh, so do you, you, want him out, you want him out of the credits? I think his presence, I don't think his presence has been felt on this <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that's nice of you to say, but let's be honest, he's, he's moved, he's moved on from the podcast. I mean, he's, okay. he's, he's putting a hard boundary. I mean, you know, I mean, no doubt he's there to on hand to provide some advice if we need it. But I mean, it's just not true to say that his presence has okay, been Okay, then. Okay, he's cut. As, as of next week, he's getting no <laughs> No, no, I think we should... He's getting no credit at all. No, I think we should carry on giving him credit because he just does such an amazing job for that's us. Den- that's denial, though, isn't it? That's denial. Well, no, but... We've got to go through the stages of grieving him leaving the, the podcast. I mean, Emily Power got a lot of credit for a long time. I mean, maybe he's a new Emily Power, basically. <laughs> Thanks to Joel Pierce, who used to do a brilliant job for us. <laughs> if you think there's been any discernible drop in quality this week, it's, it's because of Joel leaving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Gail is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance. And our artwork wasn't designed by uh, Emily Power. Although she deserves time. a bit of credit in the she sort really of Joel does. Pierce. I mean, it was great, that old artwork. But... Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that was done by Henry Cole. He's been at the cop. He's been not much cop. <laughs> As these have been. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>